The Garden Question is a podcast for people that love designing, building, and growing smarter gardens that work. Listen in as we talk with successful garden designers, builders, and growers, discovering their stories along with how they think, work, and grow. This is your next step in creating a beautiful, year-round, environmentally connected, low-maintenance, and healthy, thriving outdoor space. It doesn't matter if you're a beginner or an expert, there will always be something inspiring when you listen to the Garden Question podcast. Hello, I'm your host, Craig McManus. In this episode, we talk with Nancy and Pierre Montrier about how they approach garden creation as a wife and husband team. Why inspiring your garden soul is important to them as they design and build an outdoor space. They bring life to their garden creations by harvesting natural materials to build one-of-a-kind whimsical structures known as French folly. A whimsical world in the garden will open up to you as they talk about old-world antique troughs. Listen to the scheme of how these lost-and-forgotten common garden and farm items are artistically applied to the garden. Of course, there's bukus of plant talk also. You can see the images of Nancy and Pierre's creations on this week's episode page. This is episode 98, Inspiring Your Garden Soul, with Nancy and Pierre Matrier on the Garden Question Podcast. You're invited to engage with us on Instagram at the Garden Question Podcast. If you'd like to email me directly, the address is question at thegardenquestion.com. That's question at thegardenquestion.com. Please remember, your ratings and reviews are always appreciated. Nancy and Pierre, how do you approach garden creation as a wife and husband team? Garden creation for us as a husband and wife team, it's kind of like a 24-7 activity because we're just passionate about what we do. We might be eating dinner and realize, oh, this is the greatest idea. We might be visiting another garden and say, oh, look how we could implement in that particular property. It's an everyday thing. We're in the thick of it all day long, every day, which is good and not really bad. The good thing is that we're in the same rhythm. So when we're in the heat of spring, we both come home at the end of the day. We're exhausted. We're exhilarated. We're inspired. Then that discussion carries through dinner, which is good and bad because then you're kind of working all the time because that discussion carries on through dinner and afterwards and in the morning. It's good and it's bad because you don't have someone to stop talking about work. It's fun. It's exhilarating. If you had a husband or a spouse that wasn't in your same field of work, you'd get to that busy time of year and they wouldn't be able to relate necessarily to your exhaustion level. I uh, second that totally, and I will just add on a different note that we're very fortunate that we are very complementary in our skills and everything, so that makes the relation very uh, like positive and more fruitful. I'm sure everybody wants to know your story of how y'all met. Okay, all right. So we actually uh, met in England, and it was a total, totally a random thing. Um, I was traveling, I was done with my uh, college studies, and I had to head towards the military army for a year, like at the time every man had to, um, to do. And I decided to go to England and just find a job and just spend a few months before going back to France to the army. And um, it happens that I was living in a youth hostel near my work, near the British uh, Museum. 
And um, one day, I guess, um, Nancy arrived and to stay in the same use of state and she uh, mistakenly got sent to the wrong room. When she got to the room, um, she met a fellow Australian that was in there and told her, because at that time, rooms were mixed uh, in England in use hostels, told her that there were no beds available, so it must have been a mistake. So she turned around, went back to the front desk, got a situation straightened out, and that could have stopped here, except for um, the same evening, she uh, ventured out, I guess, to get a, a beer at a local pub, and uh, what did she find there but the French guy and the Australian fellow that she had just met in the afternoon, and so the fellow recognized her, asked her, um, you know, she found a room and if everything was okay. She was traveling alone, so she was more than happy to uh, start, you know, a conversation. And that's how we got uh, introduced. And uh, I guess you could say there was love at first sight. No, well, then we started talking about recycling and my heart went <laughs> <laughs> So he captured you with recycling, huh? Yeah. Who would have thought? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's better. I thought it was going to be some favorite plan or something y'all were drooling over or something. And then we had a long-time relationship because then I did go back eventually to France and went to the army, and that lasted for a year. So we had a basically a year and a half long-distance relationship. We worked at getting myself a visa so I could come work here and came here first on a tourist visa and eventually came here on a UNL visa. And then after that, we figured out if we could work together and still get along, then we could get married. And so that was 23 years ago and we are still happily married and working together. Well, congratulations on 23 years. So Nancy, why were you in England? I was designing gardens already since I graduated from college and started this company also had other full-time employment at other horticultural institutions. At that point, I was struggling in my designs to come up with creative and attractive hardscaping materials because a lot of things around here were concrete and maybe stone was beginning to be incorporated for your regular backyard gardener. It was hard to really study good garden structure. So I thought, I like beer and they speak my language. They're known for wonderful gardens. Went to the library, did a lot of research, took off on my own to go to England to study garden structure. Really just wanted to get a feel for all of that and bring it back and apply it to my work in designing here in Maryland. Well, how do you create a garden with soul? First, need to mean it from the soul in order to be able to create it with a soul. A garden with a soul means a garden that is not hollow. It's a garden that has an ambience to it, creates emotion when it's visited, when it's looked at. It's a garden that has personality, a garden that's going to surprise people, that's going to make them think and reflect, long for something. It's going to make them want to garden more, want to create something interesting. I think it's all these things. I think it's a, it's a garden that has a, a personality. You can do a garden design that is plants and hardscape, but then it's always nice to add other objects and other elements. That exemplifies the personality, whether trying to tune into what the homeowner personality is about. You're adding ornamentation by the type of materials you use or whether it's the style of the containers, statuary, what have you. The quality of that ornamentation can give a deeper soul or a more superficial soul. 
you can feel when you walk into a garden that someone that's passionate about horticulture has made that garden. You can just feel the sense of how the soil has been tended, how the plants have been planted, how the plants are oriented. I mean, you can give two different installers, just let's put it on a basic level like that, the same palette of plants and even the same design. You can just feel it. It's a matter of the level of ornamentation, the quality of ornamentation, the spirit of the person that's creating, of the people that are creating that. Of course, time adds soul to a garden. Souls are born every day when you talk about a human, but it's the soul that's old that gives has more depth to it. And what part does French folly play into creating soul in the garden? French people as a general rule, I would say, are very playful. Not only do we love board games and all that thing, but I think French people like to, in their garden creation, add some element of fantasy. Things are going to surprise people. That's uh, an effect that's used widely in France. That's what adds to the soul of a garden and create one of these funny things such as a treehouse that's going to draw the eye and make people wonder. It's a technique that brings and elevates a garden because usually these things are one of a kind. So you're never going to see two. I think that grab people. They, you know, they of course feel it. One thing we hear or we heard uh, quite a lot, like, so we do have, you mentioned the treehouse. So uh, you're probably referring to the treehouse that we have in our backyard that I built um, about 20 years ago. And it's funny, you wouldn't um, believe how many people, the, the most asked question was like, how many kids do you have by passersby? And they were very shocked when uh, you know, I would tell them that we actually don't have any kids. And I just built that treehouse because that's something when I was a kid that was kind of a, a child's dream. And here I was able to have my own house, my own tree, and I was able to fulfill that child dream. And on top of that, you know, for me, the, the reason of a treehouse is not necessarily that it be necessarily used per se, but that it be looked at. It's like a, an ornament, a piece of sculpture. And I always respond to, you know, to people in a conclusion that if that, could, if that made a, a smile on their face appear, then it made my day. And that was um, a, a good reason enough to build a treehouse. Because we need good stuff in the world. There's too many bad stuff happening. And we, I think we have a power as, as garden designers of all to bring joy to people. We need to use it. The French Follies just take it to a whole nother level that most gardens don't have. Unless you're in France, and then they do these crazy things, magical, fun things. What part does garden structure play into creating a soul for the garden? Maybe it's not so much structures that's going to give soul to the garden, but it's what type of structure you build. You could decide to put a whirligig in your tree. That wouldn't give much soul to the garden. And if you put a tree out, that's more interesting. You could decide to build a cinder block wall in your backyard, but if you do um, a twig fence and suddenly you elevate the space and you catch the eye and you give more importance to that wall. So I think it's the type of material that you choose and the shape and form and how daring you are with this thing, trying to think out of the box, that's what brings soul to the garden. Well, that's certainly true. I mean, when I think of uh, years ago, I did this garden design. The people wanted a deck and things. And I just had imagined that this deck would be made of wood materials. And then they, they called and said, all right, we've got the deck done. We're ready for you to do the other part of the garden. I arrived on site and it was all this PVC deck. And I thought, oh, golly. 
Years later, they purchased this beautiful cast iron, like a six-foot fence, and it was beautiful. And Pierre got to build a, a footing for it, a wall, a low wall to support the iron fence go atop, and that had soul to it. So here you've got this new material, this PVC glaring white, but then you've you know, the black, the elegant, the patina, you know, where it might have been perfectly painted. There's little pock marks of rust starting. It had age. And that has a soul. It has a history. Our troughs and things, they're a distillation of history. So I feel like maybe soul comes from distilling history in the element. Okay, well, did you talk about garden rooms and the part they play in your creations? Garden rooms definitely help any garden space, any property feel larger. Garden rooms are your opportunity to create places with different personality, with different ambiance, with different color compositions. That makes it sound confusing, but your home is broken into different rooms. You have a hallway, you've got the bedroom and the living room and the dining room and the study off of here. And it's the same And each one of those rooms has a different purpose and a different ambiance, a different experience. That's the same that you're doing with a garden. You're wanting to create rooms. Your, your goal is to make your garden as experiential as possible. Defining rooms, whether it be a deck where you're overlooking your land or a perennial garden that's bordered by a, a hedge and all of this filled with his flowers or another room where you just play games in that room. Whether your acreage is a third of an acre or, or 50 acres, you can define the room with different styles, different ambiances different souls inhabit each one of those garden rooms too. I would add as well, it's kind of one of these designer trick that you learn and you have a space that you want to make bigger, divided in smaller pieces. You will feel like the space is bigger, adding diagonal in your space, things like that. It's like if you take your house and you take all the walls out of your house, it isn't as big because it's all one ambiance, one space. It's the same outdoors. What type of hardscapes do you use to define the rooms? A room can be defined by a lot of different things. So it can be defined just by the ground plane. So what you're using on the ground surface, whether it be gravel or turf or uh, a hard pavement, a bluestone, what have you, bricks, pavers. A room can be defined by the use of hedges, fencing, which is pretty obvious. A pergolas can be defining of a room too, because what are posts? You know, if you have open posts, they're just room devoid of wall in certain sections. A room can be defined by the canopy of a tree that hangs over and creates the ceiling, the overhead plane. I know one of your favorite materials you like to work with is red cedar. Could you tell us how you use red cedar in defining your rooms or spaces? I like to use cedar as a raw material. So we actually go and harvest cedar, Junipers virginiana grows pretty much as a weed around. It's one of these pioneer trees that invades old fields that have not been tilled or uh, one of the first trees that's going to colonize, for example, the side of a highway after work has been completed. In a few years, the first tree that you're going to see will be a red cedar. Not that I stop on the side of the road and there's the cedar like that. Although we've been tempted. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow we managed to find sources of people that are more than happy to have us collect cedar on their land. We uh, cut all the branches down, we chainsaw the trees, and we try to bring them in uh, as long pieces as we can back to the shop. And I assemble these fences 
And what's interesting with that is that you use pretty much all parts of the tree, from the trunk to the tippity top and the branches on the bigger trees. Everything is assembled to make a, a weaving of branches. I like to create patterns out of these irregular branches. And I think the contrast of rustic material and definitely a natural one that's organized in a somewhat symmetrical fashion, I think the contrast is pretty striking. And that's what usually catches people's eyes because they don't expect to see branches organized in a geometrical pattern, for example. Even when I use branches to make what I call webbing, which is ornamentation detail within a fence, this is all twisted, but they're not to it to make it look like it's a geometrical pattern, even though we're using irregular pieces. We love to use that technique to divide rooms anytime we can, because we're very fond of that, because it's one of our favorite craft. I was studying some of your work, noticing the different sections, and how branches flowed from one section to another. There was just a flow to that. I thought that was very cool to see that flow from, from section to section. Yeah, thank you. A fair amount of people wonder if we bend the pieces, because the answer is no. It's just a matter of finding the right pieces that are going to help you achieve the effect that you want. It is a bit of a headache, and you do need a nice selection in order to achieve that, and it takes a long time. When it does happen, it's really cool. Are y'all good at puzzles? You're determining what the puzzle's going to look like, but you're still trying to fit all these pieces and find the branches and everything to put them together and come together. We don't know what the puzzle is going to look like, and we let it evolve. We know we want a nice picture at the end, but we don't know what that picture exactly is. And for that reason, I just love to let the work evolve because it needs to feel good, needs to flow. Otherwise, that means I'm not in the right direction. Go with like a loose concept and then see where the pile is going to take you because that's the thing is you get a pile of wood to work with and you've got to make do with what's in the pile. The neat thing about cedar is that it has a very human quality about it. The wood, it feels muscular. There's life in each one of those. When he creates something out of the cedar, perfect as it is, that the natural material of the wood really shines through and gives a personification to whatever structure he's built. Why do you prefer to work in the natural materials for your hardscapes? Maybe that comes from my French origin, where we're surrounded over there by old things like old villages and walls and old fences and gates. I've just always loved that when I was growing up. One of my playgrounds was an old 13th century ruined castle. I've always loved the ambience that emanate from these spaces, which are more than the sum of their parts, really, literally. When I came here in the States, so now, you know, 25 years ago, Despite the fact that we're living in beautiful Annapolis and it has some history to it as far as the U.S. goes, I was still missing that kind of oldness of spaces we are working in or or the space we wanted to create. So I think using those materials kind of helped me get back to something that I truly love and that speaks to me. Now, I notice you do a lot of stonework. In fact, uh, one in particular where you built a sofa out of stone. How did that come about? We did a design for this sloping garden under a grove of sweet gum trees, which was <laughs> you know, always tricky. And she needed a retaining wall. It was sort of like a dead corner. You just put a wall there, and the main thrust of the garden was to go right through it to the front door, but we needed to create path systems through these other parts of the garden. It was just an embellishment of a retaining wall. What do we do with that that doesn't just become this wall in the corner, but it becomes a place to go? Then Pierre used his brilliance and created a stone couch. 
We need to add that when you're looking at the couch, just a little bit further up the slope, there is a, a meditative labyrinth that's made of about 20 tons of stones with a ruined wall around. And that was kind of you know, one of these funny assignments where, I don't know, people have trusted us for a long time to do these kind of crazy projects. So that was an assignment, I guess, or maybe it's us that are able to convince the client that that's a good idea. The lady wanted um, a meditative labyrinth and she wanted it surrounded by a wall came to that idea, but we said, what about a ruined wall, plant creeping out of little pockets? And she said, I love it. So there we are. And we built a meditative labyrinth surrounded by the ruined wall uh, with little plants creeping out at like a big size. I mean, the diameter was uh, probably, what, 30 feet of the labyrinth? Customer loved stones. So maybe that's why we were able to convince her that a stone couch was a good idea as well. Those are rather sizable stones. Some of them look like they could be three tons or more. Are you moving those around by hand or machine, or how do you do that? Unfortunately, I've been like everybody else, young and stupid. I moved a lot by hand. Then I realized that I better kind of stop that. We invested in a little machine called a dingo, tiny little machine that can fit through backyard gates, 33, 34 inches, all you need. And you have a bunch of attachment that you can add. You can do footings with that. You can have a bucket, the forks. You can lift a thousand pounds with the one that I have. It's proven very, very handy, and I love it. I just wish that uh, I had bought that 20 years ago. But you built the stone seating couch by hand. That was being smarter than a stone. What is your most favorite garden structure that you've ever built? I'll say that the treehouse is pretty up there, no pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> We've built 50 by 50 cedar fence for a vegetable garden. That becomes like pretty impressive. I'm sure you have the same problem in Georgia. Here in Maryland, a lot of problems with deer. These fences out of cedar, that's really their main goal, protect the vegetable garden from deer browsing. We've done a couple of ruined structures, so that big labyrinth I was talking about, but then other just encasing a gate to give it some special ambience. Fun gazebo, all made out of cedar. Yeah, that's beautiful structure. The public garden, beautiful wood in the ceiling. They stripped all the bark off of the cedar and made a pattern on the ceiling with the same dimension cedar pieces. That was beautiful. And then we've made a trompe which was a beautiful folly. The homeowners had this dead end, a little shed they would access from the other side. You want the garden to be a circuitous route, the pathway around the house. Well, they just didn't want to take that shed out. So it's like, what do we do with this dead end? It's always when there's these tricky design challenges, Pierre's brain ticks in and made a trompe l'oeil. So there's a ruined wall and a mirror. Years ago, we had a new employee in that first day of work. We arrived at the garden and we go in the back and we sit down and eat lunch. There's a little table right there. And he's like, all right, I'm going to go back and get my gloves. Gets up from the table and he starts to walk, wanted to walk through the trompe l'oeil. He didn't even realize that it was a mirror. You have to put those in the right position to be fully effective, but that's a really wonderful folly. The key there is to orient the mirror just tilted enough so that when you walk to it, you don't see yourself in the mirror. We had built a walkway in front of it, which, you know, leads your eye to the mirror, but also reflects, the walkway reflects in the mirror, so it looks like it goes through. So yeah, that was fun. That was fun. Yeah, I got tricked by one of those one time. We were putting some sod in this backyard around a pool, and on the fence they had a mirror. And I kept looking over there, and I said, well, those people next door have got a really interesting garden. And I I looked at that thing probably 30 minutes before I realized it was a mirror. (laughs) 
<laughs> mirrors are great. Yeah. great yeah. Yeah. Now, you incorporate other things in walls, too. I know y'all are into antique troughs really big time. Could you tell us about those? It's kind of a new venture, along with love for old stone and everything of that nature that come from France or other old countries. I've personally fallen in love, and I think Nancy did fall in love with those things, too. We have started to import some of these troughs from France, and what they are, they're just like old objects that were used to feed the livestock, uh, provide water and or food. The very neat thing about them is that they were all hand-carved in one chunk of granite or basalt or sandstones. Farmers were just doing it like a couple of, maybe more centuries ago, just by hand. The thing that's very amazing is that each one of these stones is unique. You'll never find two alike. They all have their personality. They're just underappreciated, amazing artifacts that tell a story that we love to incorporate in our creations or uh, amplify them by uh, transforming them, for example, in fountains, using the trough as a basin and then finding a stone that will represent the headstone and then finding an antique spigot. The combination of all of that can create some very interesting element that then can be used in the garden and give soul instantly to space because the object is so old in itself and because you've suddenly added water dimensions, you've added sound, you've added movement, so you've created an ambience. The fact that everything started with an old stone from France, from Europe, just a conversation piece. Everybody likes that, right? Yes. Yeah, so I love these things. That's they're strong elements because they were something at some point, and you wish the trough could talk and tell the stories that it's heard or the history that it's seen or the lives that it's touched. Because at some point, these troughs were used to sustain life. They're old enough that people were relying on that trough to hold water for their livestock that they were eating, that they were living from. There's a lot of history there, just a distillation of history right there that you're bringing to your backyard. English people saw them in their backyard and didn't realize how special they were. You take it out of the context and bring it to another place, it elevates them to another special quality. Yeah, and Greg, for uh, you know, people that are not familiar with trough, you've got to imagine when you are in front of a trough that's like seven foot long, for example, that means that the block of stone of one piece and they didn't use any cement back then. So somebody had to carve out that chunk of stone. It ends up being hollowed out and all carved and everything, and it still weighs about 2,000 pounds, you just can't even imagine how heavy it was when it started. How on earth did they maneuver these things? The thing with troughs as well that's very intriguing is that you can't date them. The one thing we know about them is that they are at least 150, 200 years old. And the way we know that is because cast iron became very popular after the Industrial Revolution appeared in Europe around you know, 1830, 1850. When cast iron became readily available because of molds and all of that, farmers threw the chisel and the hammer down and said, well, we're done with that. Now we're going to buy the cast iron trough. But you can't date them because they have been in use forever before. What would you date? You date the stone. You wouldn't date the chiseling of the stones. They are very intriguing objects. And so to have the privilege to find them and be able to use them in a garden creation is just very special. What's amazing to me is that they've made it through time and not cracked or broken. See some of these troughs, and they look like maybe an inch and a half to two inch thick wall. You would think those would crack or freeze and break them out or something, but that's amazing that they've gone through the centuries like that. 
it is amazing in many broken, which is one thing as well when you shop for them, that you need to make sure you don't have cracks and you know, you got to examine the object. That's the other thing that's amazing with these things is that I don't know how many trough friends started out with, but I can tell you one thing is that every day that passes, there's one less or two less. So, you know, they disappear. I think what I love about that is, you know, everybody is familiar with like the statues and the, you know, very refined antique. I think what excites us is to actually find those undervalued objects that are more like what we call farm art. That folk are these objects that are, yeah, flying under the radar. That that people, when they see it, they're like, oh, I love it. You know, that's amazing. But you ask them, do you know what a trough is? They might have said, uh, no, no idea. Or I didn't realize that a trough could be that beautiful. That is fun to bring that to the men's trade show, Mid-Atlantic trade show in Baltimore. We had a, a booth and we were presenting our troughs and other garden antiques that we like to import as well. The reaction was just unbelievable. And our booth was packed constantly and people were just asking about them and were dreaming. And it's just nice and it warms my heart to see that this object can join people like that. Remind them that there is beauty in those old handmade objects. I think people are tired about the concrete and the, everything in the mold and the IKEA type model. Mm-hmm. People are yearning for something that authentic, that grabs you by the soul. Here we are again, real objects. You're often getting shipments in of the troughs. What kind of things can we expect? Is it just troughs or are there other things there? Or what are you anticipating? The next shipment is going to be full of beauties. We have about 45 to 50 troughs in there. Some very, very special pieces. The longest trough that we have is about seven and a half feet long. That's, that's really some neat thing. And then we have, of course, other little uh, goodies in there, like old little garden gates and some iron pieces and everything. Every time we go home, we like to go and try to see if we can find the right pieces that we're looking for and prepare the next shipment. Once every year, once every two years, depending on how fast what we have is going, I hope that your uh, people will check our website at uh, greenergardensantiques.net and get in touch if they're interested because there aren't many people that do import troughs. So I think we have a pretty special product that will certainly appeal to some of your listeners. I noticed in your designs that repetition is really important throughout the gardens. Why is that important? It gives cohesiveness to a place, a place where you really can find repetition that gives strength to a garden is the use of hardscape materials. It's good to limit that use of hardscape materials to three. If you have a home and there's an element of your home that's built with brick, then you're going to want to repeat that brick out into the landscape. You can choose two other materials. One would be a paving material. So whether you use the brick in your paving or you introduce another material like bluestone, there would be a building or a support type stone that would also be important that you could build walls with or you can use as a decorative element in the garden. For example, our home has a brick chimney. That's the only element of our home that was brick. It's a wooden home. We have then incorporated that as edging to our walkway up to our house. Pierre's done foundation of the house. He's faced it with brick, so that ties that in even further. We've chosen a Pennsylvania lilac stone as our surface element. So that is repeated from our front walkway to our office porch and back to our patio area as well. And then on our office porch, we've also done the wall to elevate that little porch with brick. We've made a special pattern in the paving with that Pennsylvania lilac of brick, a circular motif. 
Then we've used moss rock. We've used to build some small retaining walls. We've built to do some framing to our driveway area. Moss rock can also be used to create berms or retaining areas that you might want to keep soil into a particular area. The other thing, repetition that we've done on our own property would be a circular motif in our patio out back, which is half of a circle. It's an arc shape on each of the office and the front door porch. It's a quarter of a circle. That ratio, we like to find common denominator in the properties where we work. We were going to build our vegetable garden fence. Where do we get the dimension of that vegetable garden fence? That side of the house, that facade on that side was 25 feet in length. We chose to build our structure 25 feet by 25 feet. We've repeated that same proportion, that modular, shall we say, throughout the property. So the patio at the back, it's a half circle, but it's a 25-foot diameter circle with a 12 and a half foot radius. Our shed that we've built, which is a little quirky little shed as well, but that's 12 and a half feet by 12 and a half feet. So we're repeating that even though all elements might not be visible in one glance, it just gives continuity. It feels cohesive throughout the property. Doing that in any garden design, you find that that golden proportion, then you follow through in creating your garden using that, repeating that. How do you like to use plants to soften the hardscapes? Well, my design style certainly has evolved over the years. Using plants to soften the hardscapes can come as, instead of putting up a fence, we'll make a hedge, and that'll be a softer element than a hedge. Placing a tree at the proper point, softening things with perennials that flop over the edges of the hardscape. Little creepy, crawly plants planted in in dry stack walls. Right. Layering of plant material softens the hardscape element. You've recently returned from a trip to France. What did you learn or discover on that trip? I guess I have rediscovered, because we knew that already, we talked about it, but playful French designers. We visited a couple of uh, very nice gardens. We took a little side trip to the Dordogne region, southwestern France, which I highly recommend. Beautiful land of old villages and just delicious food. Gorgeous, but there are a couple of uh, gardens, one being like the Jardin de Marquesac and another one, the Jardin d'Erignac. It's just funny, the surprises that French people like to reserve for the visitors. For example, the Jardin Marquesac draws on the art. You know, we, we are familiar with the French people loving to clip everything. Versailles and everything is straight. They kept that pruning thing very tightly into shapes. But instead of making them boxes and rectangles, they went totally round and soft in front of the main house. It's all boxwood, which is a little scary because our dealing was blight as well over there. These uh, amalgam of boxwood that are planted next to one another and that are pruned in the cloud shapes, full hillside of those, taking shearing that's very traditional French, putting a twist into it and making it very playful. And the result is just very, very creative. Little secret spaces and little garden follies and things that you wonder, like, what's the point? And again, the goal of a folly is just to provide delight. That's all. And I think French are really good at doing that. Nancy, how did you feel in France at those gardens? To many people, they would never want to go look at a garden in the wintertime. I feel very fortunate to have that be our downtime where we get to go to visit gardens during that time of year. You have to use a bit of imagination 
when you see roses without flowers and without foliage and saying, oh, what would this be like in the growing season? Well, of course, in the growing season, there would be thousands of people in these gardens. You get to experience these places devoid of people. And of course, gardens are places for people, but it really helps in our study, I think, to see these spaces without people because I can't imagine the people there. I find that they're brave to be using so much boxwood when they've got boxwood blight. This whole garden, the whole garden was boxwood. And it was out on this peninsula where you walked for, it could have been close to a mile, where there were little follies off to every random space, but the whole thing was boxwood. So they've got the blight and they've got the boxwood moths. So that's kind of concerning for them. How did I feel there? This was an exhausting year, so it felt really special to be in France. It's a real privilege to get to go see some of these gardens that are in these back little corners of France. Americans go to Versailles and they go to Monet's garden, of which we've been to both of them, and they're wonderful and magical and no doubt must see gardens. But these other places are a little further away and extra special. Every time I go, I feel special in these French gardens because they are so playful. Do you ever think about how your garden is going to be managed when you're designing? Oh, most definitely. Yes, and I've definitely matured with that whole concept from 34 years ago when I started designing a garden until today. If you want a garden to be successful, you have to design with that thought in mind. If they're going to be hiring the landscape company to come and do the mow, blow, and go, that's one type of design. We try not to do those types. If it's going to be the homeowner that's going to be taking the care of the garden under their wing, that's going to be another level of complexity that you can design, depending upon the homeowner's experience, skill, or motivation. Age comes into play with it, as I'm realizing for any of us at this point in caring for a garden. When we design gardens over the years, we've encouraged the homeowners to have us participate in the care of their garden, at least on an annual basis. With good care, we can go in and do one good spring cleanup, and that can carry a garden pretty well through each year with some input by the homeowner. Depending upon the complexity that the homeowner wants, that's where I design toward. These days, we only design gardens that we work in. They're larger, more extensive designs. It's imperative for us to put high-quality horticultural care at the forefront when you're creating real gardens. Lasting beauty is not created on the cheap, but quality doesn't need to be expensive. Maintaining or managing a beautiful garden is a matter of proactive, intelligent care versus costly, less effective care. It's about long-term knowledge of a site and the ability to be a constant observer, a detective, a doer, and a student. You're just constantly looking. You must wear all of these hats to be a good gardener. And Being a good gardener is wonderfully exhilarating. I mean, especially when you get to share these creations with others, to see and participate in their response to what you've created. It's totally rewarding to inspire and provide renewed energies to another one's soul through our work. All right, you said proactive care. What do you mean by that? Procrastinators do not make good gardeners. You can't put all of your weeding off to two months from now. You kind of need to be weeding all the time as you go along to keep those weed populations, those seed populations suppressed. So it sounds like you're doing a lot of anticipation there. Oh, definitely. And you can only anticipate because you have experience. And you can only gain experience by being an observer, by being a detective, 
by paying attention to everything. For example, last week I was walking through our garden that we maintain, and I noticed there's a lot of big old boxwood here. And looking at this time of year, it's a really good time to look at your boxwood especially and see what boxwood are stressed. So they're going to show an orange, an off color to their foliage if they're stressed. And the stress can come in a whole bunch of different levels, be it water, be it a soil issue, be it too much sunlight. So you might get this orange resulting from any one of those situations. But on this one particular boxwood, you know, I was walking and looking at all of them, just observing like who's doing what, I need to know what to do next season or what not to do. And I looked and like, oh no, that one's showing a bit of sign of stress. And I remembered that last year there was a gutter that was overflowing up behind that boxwood. I caught it last year. There was some construction that went on. And when that gutter, that downspout was leaking, time it was corrected was potentially enough to go in and damage those roots of that boxwood that for years it never turned that yellow. I have to piece that bit of information like, well, why would that be turning orangey, off color bronzing, I guess is what you'd call it, at this time of year? What's happened in the last year? or two years or three years that might affect that. Be a good gardener. You really have to collect all of that information, be able to know what to do to apply to correct that. Correct it early enough that it's not too late. What do you wish people would do differently when designing, building, or growing a garden or landscape? Well, I see a mistake that often happens, and that is where people plant the plant material way too close up to the foundation of the house. Plants need their personal bubble. There's typically roof overhang on the house. When people tuck plants up against the foundation of the house, you're not allowing Mother Nature to water the plants, so the plant is then going to even be more reliant on inputs of irrigation or manually to get these plants watered. Plants need room to grow. Contractors also need accessibility to care for the structures. If you've got the camellia right up against the back of the house, you can't get in there to either paint the house or if there's a problem with the house or the structure. Because plants need to be watered, if you have the root zone too close to the foundation, then you're putting moisture at your foundation. We don't really want moisture at the foundation. Plants need to be watered. Foundations don't like to water. Overplanting or tight planting, planting with minimum spacing is short-sighted and a waste of time and money, often causing pests and disease to be happier in these areas where there's less air circulation. When professionals overplant, it makes a professional look amateur. By no means does this mean that you want to have generous swaths of mulch around each one of the plants. The goal is to have the earth covered with plant material or with foliage. That's going to make maintenance easier because you're not going to have any ability for light to reach the soil and the seeds to germinate. Also makes for a prettier garden, except for sometimes. I mentioned that to someone years ago, and I said, no, you really don't want to see the mulch around your plants. The goal is to have the whole earth covered with foliage and flowers and plant material. She said, oh, I actually really like the mulch. So I kind of took that as seeing the underwear around the plant material. I have a saying for that. You know they're there, but you don't really want to see them. <laughs> I think that too often designers just think that they are almighty and that they can do whatever they want, impose themselves on nature and be successful this way. And I think a much better approach is to analyze the site correctly then make choices that are in relation to what you're given and make the most of it. 
I'll just give you a quick example. A couple of years ago, uh, we got a new customer, customer backyard. Not very happy with my lawn at the back. It's not really looking good. It's thin, and then there is moss growing in it. Uh, like you to do something to make that better. Get rid of the moss and grow me some nice grass. It was Nancy at that time that was like, I think we're going to do better for you, Barbara. What we're going to do is we're going to kill your grass and we're going to grow your moss. Fast forward, we've oriented the garden around Japanese theme because of the moss. The garden now is beautiful. It's purely moss. You can imagine how beautiful it looks, especially after a, a rainfall. And then we've set some stepping stones that are rounded to emulate a bit of a Japanese garden ambience. It's very simple. Just that notion of like, why try to fight nature? It's going to be so much easier. You have a soil that's poor in nutrients, then find the plants that want a low nutrient soil. You have a soil that's very rich, then look for those plants that like that type of soil. I mean, it's a simple concept, but I think that it's not totally understood by everybody yet. When you see that, it kind of hurts. This easy mistake could be uh, avoided by just a little bit of humility. You know, another thing to add to that is people call me, I do consulting. A couple years ago, a neighbor called and, could you tell me, you know, I want to grow the lawn here. I think it's because my oak tree is shading the lawn too much. I'm a certified professional arborist. You know, what do you think? I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to get that 10-inch limb cut off of my 24-inch caliper, beautiful oak tree that's on the corner of the house. It's this beautiful tree. I'm like, I wouldn't do it. That tree is not going to be able to heal that wound. And that whole tree, it's like when a dog loses a leg, its muscles can rebuild and it can work, can survive on three legs. But a tree is built to twist and torque and turn and all of its muscles, its reaction wood, it's built to sway in the wind and move. You remove that limb and that thing's been growing like that for 40, 50 years, and the tree can't survive anymore. So then you have a tree that's prone to failure. Because you've made that large wound, the tree has no way to heal that wound. It's too large of a wound. So that's where you get decay that enters into the tree and the demise of the tree. Fast forward six years, now they've had to take the tree out. People can't always see that and they don't believe you. You know, they just don't believe that what you're telling them is true and that they're going to lose the tree in five years. They'd rather have the, the turf. And did they ever get the turf to grow nicely there? No. What garden myth would you like to smash today? Gardening will make us live longer, which is, on a professional level is kind of a myth because it's such hard work that it might kill us before it keeps us alive longer. Beside that, on a, on a more serious note, I think it's the myth that once the garden is designed, it will just perpetrate itself without proper care. I think too often people buy a garden and they think that because they bought that garden, they bought the plant, they bought the plants, then they are done. We're dealing with living things. It's critical that the right care be paid to the plants, to the garden, so not only does it survive, but then so it grows to what was anticipated by the designer. I think too often people just overlook that. They think that it's just like buying a TV. It's going to not move. You're not going to have to do much to it. And 30 years, you just replace it. I think it takes more skill than that. The garden myth I would like to smash would be, oh, I'm only spraying the mosquitoes with organic spray. I don't think people realize that when they spray that spray, they're not only killing mosquitoes, they're also killing any other insect that's coming in contact with it. Great, it's organic. So as a human level, you are theory not being harmed by these killing sprays. They're killing any bug they come in contact with. And beyond that, the pesky bugs like mosquitoes and gnats, they have a lifespan of only five to seven days. This short lifespan helps them to adapt and build up resistance to pesticides. 
stronger and stronger pesticides are becoming necessary to control these little backyard annoyances. We reduce the bug population, the bird population declines. I won't go on, but the damage continues up the food chain. Like it or not, humans are relying on all of the components of the food chain for healthy survival on this planet. What's your earliest garden memory? Picking, harvesting asparagus from my grandmother's pet. My grandparents were farmers. They got older, of course, they abandoned the farm and they just kept their little plot of land in the back of the house to uh, grow vegetables for themselves. I thought that was really cool. Out of that mound of soil, seeing like that long spear coming out, the French people boiled and then eaten cold with dressing and it's just beautiful. And I'm very proud that we started growing asparagus a couple of years ago and we're actually really successful now. And what a delight it is to eat asparagus from the garden. My earliest garden memory was really when I was six, pushing a beautiful stroller through the, my grandmother's backyard with Snoopy in it. Her garden that was filled with delphiniums that reached the sky. There was a perennial border. There was a little fish pond that you went down this magical set of steps through all these ostrich fern. You arrived at the fish pond and then you went down a few more steps down to an iron slag picnic area. The lower part underneath the magnolia macrophylla that takes you to the front where there was a parterre opening where the cousins, we would play badminton. That was framed by a hedge of pruned hemlock, a tree swing. There was a rose garden. It was a magical place. It was a greenhouse. I mean, it was all about plants. It was plants just everywhere, everywhere. And that I spent many, many, many an hour. Can I tell you, Craig, my other earliest garden memory? Yes, go ahead. My father had me gardening at a very young age, set me up at about the age of eight, what was called a killer cane. Killer cane was this clear plastic tube about 34 inches long with a spring-loaded mechanism at the bottom. Take this tablet of herbicide and you drop it into the killer cane, fill it up with water. And at this age, this is one of my tasks. And you put the lid on and then you go out and you push on that little killer cane. It killed broadleaf weeds like dandelions and plantains. It was kind of a funny task to be put on at such a young age. And then I scratch my head and wonder why I am where I am now. It's all play to me. Hey, I'm at work and every bit of my work is play. It means he trusted you to spray weeds at eight. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> Must have been pretty good at your plant ID back then already. <laughs> well, why did you decide to pursue the horticulture or landscape profession? Loved plants when I was young and I loved art. I went to Penn State. My parents both graduated from Penn State. And they encouraged me to go into landscape architecture. And I was like, oh, I can combine my love for plants and my love for art into one occupation. That's great. After two and a half years, study, great teaching, wonderful design professor, very inspirational professors in that curriculum. But they weren't teaching me anything about plants. So they didn't really care how to integrate plants into the landscape. It was about building orientation and parking lot and sidewalks and how to drain all of those impervious surfaces, how to be an architect of land. I changed my degree after that two and a half years, spent a good five years in college, but got a degree ultimately in horticulture. I had a good background, combined those two together. Now in my career, it's been very wonderful to have both of those experiences. After I left college with a degree in rural economics, I had to go to the army. 
after I left the army, we were looking for a way to be together, Nancy and I. Since she was already running Greener Gardens, gardening company, she was able to sponsor me. That gave us the opportunity to spend a year and a half working together and finding out if we were a match. Because uh, when you meet someone and you're that far away and there's a visa requirement and all of that, it's not easy to actually figure out your relationship can go further than just a couple of weeks together in England. She sponsored me and we spent a year and a half together. And after that, we we're like, okay, but well, you know what? We uh, still like each other after being together 24 hours a day. We got married. But by that point, I could have gone and done something else. I really loved it. I've always loved being outside. Played a lot outside when I was a kid. So that felt really natural in her uh, garden creation and all that from the beginning like really willing to let me uh, take the ball and run with it she encouraged me to do stuff that I didn't even think I was able to do I think that I thought that was really fun and to have that world of possibilities really uh, motivated me to keep going with that tell us your funniest garden story when I uh, first arrived in the U.S., when I was accepted with my training visa, it was in 1999, and um, I was so lucky to arrive as Hurricane Floyd was making its way up along the East Coast. I had to change plane in uh, New York, and when I got there, I was informed that all planes were grounded, and I would not be able to take my connecting flight to Baltimore. And we were uh, on the phone with Nancy trying to figure out a way to get me down there. She had heard from one of our customers. She told her, Nancy, I checked for you and there's a train that leaves Penn Station at six in the morning. That's the last one that's running for the day. So if you want Pierre to make it to Baltimore on time, he's got to get on that train. I had arrived at the uh, hotel. It was probably one in the morning. I had to get up probably at four um, to make it on time to take the train at six. And so I made it, but I was like utterly exhausted. She picked me up in Baltimore and we drove down to Naples. I thought I could be able to rest that day at least. I was totally jet lagged and everything. And that's what I learned that one of the big gardens that Nancy was uh, the head gardener of at the time was uh, hosting the Hospice Cup that same day. The hurricane had gone through, so the party was going on. But of course, guess what the hurricane had done to the garden? And guess who was expected to come and clean it up before the party was to start? Prune away the broken branches and all that. I thought I was going to be able to rest and uh, recoup. And instead, I was put to work right away. I think I was a good precursor of what was to come. <laughs> How hard we were going to have to work from then on. And it's true that we haven't stopped. <laughs> This has happened a couple times, but after tending this very special garden of ours, after about 14 years, the clients finally invited us to their black tie New Year's Eve celebration. We arrived at the door not in our gardening clothes, but in our fancy party clothes. The owner opened up the door and said, hello, my name is Mr. You know, and he didn't recognize myself. And then eventually Pierre made his way around to the wife and she said, you know, hi, I'm Mrs. And he was like, yes, I'm Pierre, your gardener. It's just amazing that because people see us more in our gardening duds than they do in our design clothes, you know, they see us present a design in our nice clothes. They don't realize that we're not always in rugged dungarees with Felcos on our side. <laughs> <laughs> In your professional career, who's been your biggest influencer? Definitely my first biggest influence I love to give it is Nancy. It's really taught me a lot of the things that I know. Definitely um, an easy answer there uh, as far as everything horticulture. And then I have to mention as well our good friend Alan Peck, who was actually somebody that Nancy used to work with at the National Arboretum in D.C. He was a, a local mason. Early on when we started creating garden with Nancy, we needed somebody to take care of the stonework. 
So Alan was the one that was called upon. And then I started working with him. And that's how I learned the ropes. I think two years after uh, I arrived, he moved back to Rhode Island, where he's from. And I was like, isn't that a bummer? There we find a guy that we get along well with, we're friends, and the guy is super talented. He knows everything. And I'm learning with him, and he goes away. Now we're talking 20 plus years later, and we've actually kept a great connection. We do at least a project or two every year together. He comes down from Rhode Island when we have something special, and we keep working. So, you know, you never know what's around the corner. As long as you keep your spirit high and you uh, keep the face, uh, things work out in one way or another anyway. So that's worked well. I'll mention maybe a third influence, somebody that I've never met, Andy Goldsworthy. Everybody's familiar with him. Just because of the uh, the creativity of his project and I just love the fact that uh, he works in conjunction with, with nature. He's like a land artist, you know, that's what he does, land art. That's like right up my idea. I love that. Well, I've been involved in horticulture for a long time. My first paying job was at 16 at a garden center. So there's so many people along the way that have influenced me on all different levels. I must say that my parents really were my biggest influencers. My mother would plan visits to various estates in the area long before open garden tours were a a natural thing that happened in the spring or the fall. She and I would also attend Federated Garden Club flower shows. They had very highly educated, shall we say, judging. And we would go and we would study the arrangements. You know, we'd look at the class description and it's supposed to be this. It's for a dinner party and it's supposed to be this size. And we would study these compositions and say, oh, this is good. This is not so good. She was teaching me design on all different levels all of the time. Then we would go back and we would study what the judges chose as the first place, second place, third place, and see how we did in our study. My dad, he was a well-respected nursery stockbroker, and he prided himself in his ability to provide unusual specimen plants to nurseries and landscape contractors throughout the mid-Atlantic region. He had an endless wealth of knowledge that was gained and shared among nurserymen and nursery women in all of his travels. He would also share all of that with me. He was passionate about gardening. They both were just such an influence on me. It was my own personal horticultural hotline. Till the day he died, Dad, what should we do here? How can we do this? What do you think? They were very influential. What's your most valuable garden mistake? On a project early on, underestimate what was going on outside of the frame that we were designing. In other words, we had a a canvas, you know, somebody uh, needed a garden. I built my uh, retaining wall and I kind of was thinking in my bubble of the property line. And in so doing, I totally underestimated the amount of drainage that I needed in my retaining wall. What I didn't consider, and there were so many houses that were upslope and that the house I was working at basically was right in the swell of all these houses. And the wall I was building was right in the swell of all that. What happened, you can easily guess, is that the wall just started like screaming. Because on top of that, I had finished the wall with like a stucco type finish. The stucco started buckling. It just was like a mess. We had to go back and we had to drill the wall and add some drainage and then lift up the paver and dig down all the material that was against the foundation and waterproof the the inside of the wall and put everything back together. That was a costly mistake. So definitely consider not just the property line, but what's happening further up and around. 
Assuming that because the wife asks for, approves, and says yes, that the husband will too, can be expensive. What have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening that you didn't know? This past year, we did the most substantial project of our career. It was larger in scale and scope than any of our previous projects. It was exhilarating. We learned how to craft a natural-looking and feeling 30,000-gallon water feature of gunite. We learned the art of setting three-ton boulders with large equipment and how to work intimately with other contractors. It was a really wonderful experience. This question goes on so many levels because you learn something every single day with horticulture, and that's why it's really fun. This was just kind of the biggest thing that we've learned in the past year. Well, that sounds like a very interesting garden. What style did you use, and how did you prepare for it? It was a Japanese garden. Pierre set us up with a boot camp. While we had crafted a detailed design, we still needed to study how to bring my vision to life with the assistance of large equipment and working with materials that we weren't familiar with. We had never placed a three-ton boulder before, so how do you go about making sure that once you get that heavy object set upon the earth, how do you make sure it looks right? Like any of our creations, we wanted to be beautiful, experiential, and above all else, good and sustainable horticulture that would stand the test of time. Pierre set us up on a boot camp. Basically, every night and surely at least one day of the weekend, we would come home while we were creating this garden. He would either put on some Japanese garden building on the TV, casting them from the iPad. One time he came home with a wad of clay and said, all right, we're building a model today. So we built a quarter inch scaled model that we were able to move the boulders around and see how it was going to look. Another time, it was a sketching evening. Sometimes we would read these Journal of Japanese Gardening. They were a wonderful resource. We were just constantly studying and thinking about how it was happening and what was going to happen tomorrow and studying how to execute this gunite pond liner. And that was so complex. And had we not been three steps ahead of the contractors, we wouldn't have gotten the result that we got. How do you make shelves that hold the boulders that you don't want to see the shelves within the pond liner afterwards? How do you install these rangui posts? They're little posts that run along the edge of the pond. How do you make those work within that pond liner, that shell? How do you do a pebble beach? How do you make a 40-foot waterfall and integrate the stones and make sure the gunite's covered up? He was really great to keep our nose to the grindstone, but boy, it was intense. It's been really a magical, wonderful experience. Pierre, what have you recently learned about horticulture or gardening? We work in some really nice estate gardens. So we take care of a lot of hedges, tall, small boxwood hollies. And they need to be pruned because that's what fits in the ambience of the spaces. We do a lot of pruning by hand. So a few years and my back started hurting. Nancy had always led the way and just that's the way it needs to be done. And I was starting to question whether I couldn't go into a more mechanized ways of pruning the edges, uh, namely by a hedge trimmer and do it like that. So we were debating the idea and all of that. Then when we went to France for the holidays last Christmas, when we visited this nice garden that had a ton of plants that were pruned, boxwood especially, we saw what the people were using. They were just doing all by hand. And we had a little talk with some gardeners and they said, no, you know, that's the only way you can do a good work is to use the hand clipper over the mechanized hedge trimmer. 
They explain how you, you invite disease by shredding the leaf, everything. And so that just comforting the fact that I guess, yes, we're not crazy. That's the way you got to do it. And it actually feels good to know that, you know, you're suffering for good reason. I'd like for you to complete this statement. In my garden, I have. Not enough antique trough. <laughs> <laughs> I need a few more. <laughs> I have creatures that support my soul. There are birds and bats, bugs, butterflies, and millions of tiny little microorganisms in each and every teaspoon of soil. Of course, we don't see everything, but they're there. We've had the rare opportunity, actually, of seeing a flying squirrel on our bird feeder, which are nocturnal. Just knowing that there are billions of creatures out there working to energize our third of an acre plot of this great big planet, that we have been instrumental in encouraging and building these natural populations completely soothes my soul. Our third of an acre does make a difference. As Doug Tallamy would say that each and every one of our properties is a patch in the quilt of this big giant earth, and that we all make a contribution to feeding our souls and supporting this fragile ecosystem. It supports my soul. Give us a quick tour of your garden. Our garden's not symmetrical. It's a third of an acre. There's about 800 square feet of turf. There's stones. There's rustic cedar structures. It's planted with native plants exotic plants, unusual and collected specimen plants. It's a little bit of a zoo, but it's a very designed zoo. So the specimens don't look random. It's not a collection. It's definitely a designed garden. There's a tree house that stood over 17 years now in um, crown of a sweet gum tree. Tippity top of the roof is about 25 feet up. The view from the treehouse deck provides a good overview of most of the garden. There's annuals, there's a vegetable garden, there's spaces to relax outside. There's a whimsical little shed with a special little roof and a little finial on top. There's an arbor with roses. There's roses along the vegetable fence. There's something blooming really in all seasons. There's textures. And after 23 years, it's sort of become stabilized now. It makes it easier to care for. You put in a garden it takes time to really get it to be stable and that there's this homeostasis that's going on. And that at least is good for the aging gardener. It makes it a bit easier to care for it because even though it's only a third of an acre, it's intense. It does need attention here and there. What did the garden teach you last year that you're going to apply this year? I get reminded every year of that even for professionals, it makes a lot of sense to have a plan, a design and start from that as opposed to just winging it because you think you don't really need a design because it's in your head and you see it and whatever it can lead to spaces creation that you're not really happy with later. You're like, you know, I wish I'd thought of that a little more. Now I've got to redo it. Starting with a plan on paper is always a good idea for anybody that you really need to keep plants and hedges and topiaries and things that need annual pruning to a manageable size that you can reach. Because while I don't really feel old, I realize that I am getting older. You realize that the hedge takes pruning and that you have to be able to reach that hedge. Some plants, if you say, oh, I'm going to let it grow, and then all of a sudden you say, oh, that's too big, you can't go back and prune it back, like a Leland Cypress hedge, for example. If you only want it to be six feet wide, you've got to prune it at six feet wide when it gets to be six and a half feet wide. You can't have it be 12 feet wide and then go back in and say, oh, I'm going to prune it back. Keeping things to a manageable size. If you're not able to manage something, then you have to realize, can I afford to pay someone to manage that? And if I 
can afford to pay someone to manage that and keep that in size? Is there actually someone out there that can prune that and manicure that with proper horticultural techniques that I'm going to be happy about? Do you have a plant that you're in love with this week? I have my eyes on the um, Edgeworthia crescenta that's on the, uh, the our back patio. And although it's not fully in bloom yet, all the buds are set and what a weird plant that is. I mean, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's just, it's gorgeous. The leaves are amazing. You know, it looks tropical in this during the season. And then in the winter, of course, it drops its leaves, but the structure itself is very special. And then you've got these buds that get set that are white and fuzzy. And of course, then the plant blooms, um, you know, in the dead of winter with beautiful um, yellow flowers, the most common one, and with a smell that's just divine. So um, it should it should pop up in bloom very soon, so I'm keeping an eye on that. I'm currently in love with this little Acorus graminius minimus aureus that we have planted in a trough. It's a tough little number. It takes some sun where it's moist. It takes it dry. It never needs to be touched. It smothers the ground. It's a wonderful texture. I'm in love with that plant. Nancy and Pierre, tell us how people may connect with you. They can reach out to us at our website, greenergardens.net. They can send us an email at nancy at greenergardens.net or pierre at greenergardens.net. They can also find our troughs and antiquities at greenergardensantiques.net. This has been Episode 98, Inspire Your Garden Soul, with Nancy and Pierre Montreal on the Garden Question Podcast. Nancy and Pierre, you're awesome! The goal is that every episode is valuable and well worth your time. Please generously share the Garden Question podcast with your friends, relatives, and neighbors. Check out our website, thegardenquestion.com, for links, resources, and where you can listen to every episode again and again. You will not want to miss a weekly episode, so please subscribe to the Garden Question podcast with Craig McManus on your favorite listening app. Keep on designing, building, and growing a smarter garden that works.